Uh, if this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew. You guys can go out of a seat. Uh, I'm the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. Uh, today is our monthly family-style service, so really an honor to have the kids in here with us, to hear the gospel with us. Uh, we will be starting in Luke chapter 19 today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some on the table over there. Feel free to grab one. Uh, and as you find your place uh, in your text, I will pray for us. Uh, King Jesus, we come to you in weakness. We come to you uh, as people who don't even know what is good for us. Uh, we come to you as people who uh, need you, who need your grace, who, who need your mercy. Uh, we come to you as people uh, apart from you who are lost. We come to you as people apart from you who are trying to earn our salvation. But we come to you as people to receive your love and your grace and your mercy and your kindness and your friendship and, and, and all the wonderful gifts you bestow on us. Uh, and not because we've earned any of it. We come here to respond to the power of your love and your grace and the power of your cross to conquer our sin. And so as we come to you today, Lord Jesus, I pray you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. You would lead us and guide us in your ways. And you would continue to reshape our lives in the shape of your gospel, the shape of the truth that you've paid the price for our sins so that we can live and that we would embrace the life that you've given us in great joy and fullness. Jesus, we love you and thank you that we're even here right now. We love you, Lord, and pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name, Jesus Christ. Okay, so we're going to be in Luke uh, chapter uh, 18 and kind of 19 today. I think I said 19. We're actually starting in 18. I'll, I'll read our main text, and then we'll begin to talk about it. So we're in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18. A ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he became become sad, said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to inherit the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. The rich young ruler has a very honest question, and it's the question that we're, we're asking today and that we should be asking, and that's basically this, Jesus, what do you want from me? He kind of asks it wrong. What should I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life comes through Christ. He doesn't have the full gospel picture. But really, at the core of his question is, what do you want from me? This, this is perhaps one of the most important questions that we can ask of our lives. Jesus, uh, what do you want from me? Now, the answer to the question doesn't make any sense apart from the reality of the gospel. And so we have to set that framework and understand this good news. The reality is that Jesus is God. Jesus is the one who gives eternal life. Jesus is the one who has made everything. He's made us and he made everything good. And human beings ultimately break it. But Jesus Christ comes to fix what we broke, to save us from our sins, to give us life and life in abundance. And because of our sin and because of his goodness, there's no way that we can cross that bridge to get to him, but that he had to come to save us. That he comes, he lives, he dies, he raises. And so our whole Christian life, when we receive the good news of this gospel, is a response to the love of God. God in Christ, not us trying to get to God in Christ, but receiving what he's done for us, receiving what he's done and responding to it with our whole lives. What the rich young ruler misses is the answer to the question. Let's look at it. So here we are uh, back in 18. So he asked this great question, good teacher. Now Jesus calls him and says, well, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone, right? Jesus is tipping the cards, so to speak. And the ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? A life eternal. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Only one that is truly good. There's only one who truly knows. And Jesus is tipping the cards of his identity as God. He doesn't say, I'm not good, or I'm not God. He says, well, why do you call me that? It's because this guy misses everything, everything that's important. He actually misses the answers to all those questions. 
when he's thinking about life eternal, uh, when we think about life eternal, oftentimes we're thinking about heaven. And when people, there was, a, there was an article that was recently done uh, that a, the one thing atheists don't want to get rid of, and if you're an atheist and you're here, this might be true of you too, and that may even be why you're here. The one thing they don't want to get rid of from religion is the idea of heaven because they don't like the idea of not having something like that to embrace in life because life is full of so many mysteries. Now, the thing that he misses is that life eternal and this is substantiated in 1 John and throughout the Bible, that Jesus didn't just come to pay the price for our sins, but to give us life. Life eternal. The eternal life that we live is not just about the duration of life, which is, by the way, eternal, but the quality of life that we have when we know who Jesus is and when we have our life uh, in Christ. And so he, he goes on. Jesus loves to do this. He loves to ask the questions back. And you always know that you're in trouble when he's asking you questions back, by the way. And said, so all these I've kept from, oh, he tells them the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not, oh, pardon me. Back, back, back. No one is good except for God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. So he's done all the right things. And he says something interesting here. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. A lot of commentators think this means that, that perhaps he was wiling out in his youth and at some point in time kind of cleaned up his act and started doing the right things. All these things I've kept from when I was young. Before then, you know, I was wiling out, but now I'm a rich guy, and I've got my life together, and I've put those things behind me. I have a very nice, cleaned-up life. His life looks good from the outside. Uh, that You would look at him and say, yeah, he's a, he's a good guy. He goes on. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. One thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Now, this is not a normative commandment because he doesn't do this to everybody else, and we'll see that in a minute. He's not saying that, that everybody should do this. He looks into this guy's soul and sees what's missing, right? And come, follow me. Get after me. Leave that other stuff behind and get after me. That's what he's saying. Leave that thing you love other than God behind. Leave that thing other than you love, to, to, to put it in our own terms, leave the thing other than that, that you love more than Jesus behind and love Jesus and follow him. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. He just wants Jesus' stamp of approval. All he wants Jesus to say is, hey, your life is good. Your life is cleaned up. That's great. Just keep on going, loving stuff. Using money, loving money more than people, loving money more than God, because you're a pretty good guy and you're doing all right. Jesus actually, you see this, right? Jesus loves him more than that. He loves me more than that. He loves you more than that to let us love things other than God more than God. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. That's a very bold thing he says. But listen, there's good news. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? He seems like such a good dude. Well, yeah, but he's an idolater. He loves stuff. Right? He has built a pretend God, and he worships it, and it is money for this guy. Then those who heard it said, who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Because this is the reality of the gospel. We're not saved because we're spiritually awesome. We're not saved because we're good or we're smart or we do the right things or we can check things off the list, but that God has reached down his hand for us and saved us from our sin and saved us from ourselves to life with him. That's the whole gospel. If you only get the saved from sin part, you miss the whole gospel part of life. We're given life in Christ because knowing Jesus and knowing God and living for God is life. He asked Jesus the question, basically, what do you want from me? A good question. What do you want me to do with my life, Jesus? But really, what do you want from me? And he thinks Jesus is going to give him a list of actions or either rubber stamp what he's done or give him a list of actions. Well, you're very rich, and you should probably set up a non-for-profit. It'll be tax-deductible. You can help some people out, and people will throw you a parade because you're kind, awesome, and nice. It's not what he says. He says, leave it all behind and follow me. What Jesus wants is him. What Jesus wants is you. He doesn't want you to do things to earn his love. 
He doesn't want you to behave properly so that he will love you. He wants, because if you're a Christian, you are loved by the God of the universe. What he wants you to do is respond by following him. He wants you to respond by by laying all other things aside and getting after Jesus with absolutely everything. Uh, Go with me. Let's look at this material end, right? So this guy has great material wealth. Jesus has much to say about material items and material things, much of which uh, is here in Luke. So Luke 12, he says this. Uh, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, I'm in 12 and 13. You can just listen if you don't have a Bible. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother, divide the inheritance with me. Oh, hey, look, there's a spiritual guy, and he's going to get on my side, and I'm going to get what I want out of the deal. Some of you know my testimony, but a big part of my testimony was that I'd been hanging out with Christian people, uh, and my life was a mess, and I was sinning against people, and people were sinning against me, uh, and someone had sinned against me in what I felt was a fairly profound way. Uh, I went to the Bible uh, that that I'd been reading, because I had these new Christian friends, so that I could go to the Bible and prove that I was right and they were wrong, right? This is what I did with Jesus. I went to Jesus so that Jesus could arbitrate for me by going to the Bible and say, look, here's the list. It says you're wrong, and I'm right, and this is good, and now I can be a spiritual person. What I discovered was something radically different, of course. What I discovered there is that I was a sinner and I needed salvation and that I had sinned against God in such mighty ways that I realized, A, I'd sinned against them, and B, all the ways I'd sinned against God way outweighed anything they ever had done to me and that I needed to be saved, and that's what I needed out of the deal. They're asking Jesus the wrong question, but here's what he says. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge? Oh, no, I just lost my place. There goes Luke 10. Anyways, uh, man, who made me judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Americans living in 2016. There is stuff everywhere. I was trying to explain to my children just last night, movie night, how Netflix used to work. Instead of, Instead of movies being beamed down on my phone, because the movie we were watching got slow and they got very sad and it wouldn't work because the internet connection wouldn't work, you used to go online and they would send you DVDs in the mail, and then when you were done with it, you'd put it back in the mail, and they felt like that was the most archaic idea in the world, and at the time, it felt like I lived in the future. This is amazing. They're sending me this stuff. When you live in a time and a place where people sending you DVDs in the mail seems archaic, be on guard. You have a robot that lives in your pocket that will tell you where the nearest subway or any other thing you need to find is, and we call it a telephone. We are like a frog in boiling water sometimes that we don't even know how to turn this stuff off. People have anxiety disorders now, and if this is you, I'm I'm not picking on you. I'm just saying... We're, we're so used to it that we get really nervous now if we just turn off our phone for 15 minutes. Be on guard. There's a, there's a world that is just distracting us away from the things that count. And I'm, I'm just as, as in this world as you are, so don't, don't, don't hear me picking on you. I'm just saying we need to be careful. We live with opulence and possessions, uh, the like of which no one in history, uh, at least a whole population, has not known. You know, King Solomon puts us all to shame but we as individuals, pretty much as Americans, honestly, in the top like teeny tiny percentages, put everybody else in the world, world to shame. And so be careful. So don't, don't just think this is about this guy. This is, this is about us. Okay? And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns. And I will big, build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. So he got after his possessions, and he got after relaxing because he had so many possessions. Um, But God said to him, this is bad, fool, 
This night your soul is required of you, and, these, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So is it for us. If we're not after God, we're after money, we're after possessions, we're after these things, and just sort of the white noise and the static of the world in which we live. And, and, and honestly, it's very hard because this stuff is just drowning us out. Who knew that a public bus needed Wi-Fi? Uh, apparently that is a luxury we are due in 2016. I didn't know that I needed the internet on the bus in 1985 because I didn't know what the internet was. Only Al Gore knew or some other people working in labs. That was not a political comment, by the way. He just likes the internet. We all like the internet these days, so moving on. Uh, but, but listen, so again, this, this isn't the normative command. This isn't, this isn't a call to asceticism. This isn't a call for us to all be monks because what does he say then? And he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life and what you eat, uh, nor about your body or what you will put on, for life is more than food, the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. God's got it. God, God cares about your material concerns. God cares about it when you can't pay the rent. Now, that answer, that gets answered by God in a multitude of ways. This is not a health and wealth call. But, but God is not unaware of whatever you're dealing with in the material world. But vastly more important than the material is our life with Jesus, is getting after Jesus. He wants us. He wants you. Our relationship with God is just that. It is relational. Uh, many of us grew up with parent or parents uh, in, in sort of this generation who who spent a lot of time at work, and that, that has a lot of reasons back and forth, a lot of different things going on there, but many of us kind of grew up uh, with the keys and the latches and, and, and not having someone at home, but food was on the table. And, and many of us know the, the feeling of people saying, well, you know, I took care of you. I'm your parent. I put food on the table. Uh, and, and we live in this rat race kind of world where we're kind of building and building and building and building towards more and more and more stuff and the drive to work harder and harder so we can have a bigger house and more stuff and the nicer car, right? There's a big problem there. Uh, a dear friend of mine, a guy who discipled me for many years, spent a lot of years in college ministry. And one time he said to me, just kind of in random passing, but I think it was very apt, uh, that he had never had someone whose parents who chose to work less, to live in a smaller house or a less nice neighborhood, but were there and present for their kids as they were able, who, who poured into them relationally. He never had that kid in the office saying, you know, I really wish my dad had worked more overtime and I had a nicer car when I was 16. But he had multitudes and multitudes and multitudes of college-age kids whose parents work those 10 extra hours, 20 extra hours uh, every week, week in, week out for the nicer car or the car with a bow when they're 16 or whatever that might be, the, the shiny new thing or the bigger house or the nicer apartment or the condo or whatever it might be. Plenty of those kids in their office saying, I'm just not sure if my dad loved me. My mom was never there. I don't have a relationship with them and coming to him with emptiness. Right? We often get after the wrong things and I think it's true in our life, God wants you. He wants the relationship with you. And I think we can do, have the same mentality that, well, I put food on the table. Well, well, I came to church on Sunday. I didn't flip people off when I drove. I didn't cut people off. What else do you want from me? I put food on the table. Like this, this, There's kind of a, a relational vacuum. This is true in friendship. This is true in marriage. This is true in all these levels. That, that, what, that we, we really desire in human relationship is a relationship. Right? What we're actually to be after is not stuff, but God. Uh, what, what we're to get after in life is Him. But it's not just material things. It's not just what we produce. It's not just what we validate uh, in what we have. Go with me to Luke 10, which, of course, I pulled my note out. to find it the old-fashioned way. So we're going to Luke 10. And we're here in, at the end of Luke 10, in verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, that's Jesus and his disciples, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to the teaching Okay, so 
for us, um, this, is, this is perhaps um, plain. It's not extraordinary. Uh, it is normal in the Christian church for 2,000 years, in most of the church, uh, that when there's teaching, and by no means am I equating the preacher with Jesus per se, but, but when there's teaching, everybody, men and women, come together and listen. Why? Because you are all disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ if you're a Christian. It doesn't, I mean, we kind of talked about this a little bit last week, but it doesn't matter your station in life, if you're a man, you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and your aim in life is to be after him, right? Martha and Mary have a problem, and Mary's doing something in the first century that's sort of off. She's sitting at the feet of the master. She's sitting at the feet of the disciple maker. That is a position in the minds of particular Jewish people in the first century, but even in the Roman world, that's reserved for guys only. Martha is doing what she thinks she's supposed to be doing. Keep reading, right? And she had her sister Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to the teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. So she was busy making sure there was food on the table and things were going well. That's like if we came in on Sunday and said, okay, some people are going to go and get to making sure there's coffee and things. The rest of us are going to sit in here. We're going to do the Bible stuff, and then we'll hang out later. right? Because only certain people need to hear the teaching. That's not, that's not correct in Jesus' estimation. Right? But that was very common in the first century. And, and this, this word that he chose here is very, very interesting. But Martha was distracted with what? Much serving. The Greek word here is the word diakonos, which is fun to say. But what you might hear in there is the word deacon. Diakonos, deacon. Minister is another word we use for that, servant. Um, there's three words like that in, in the Bible, right? There's, that, that sound that way. Pesbuteros. Presbyter means elder, usually. Uh, uh, episkopos, which means bishop, but you can hear Episcopalian, episkopos, bishop. And here, diakonos, deacon, serving. All, all different ministers, uh, elders and bishops, though please don't call me bishop, elders and bishops, or any of the other elders in the church for that matter. Uh, elders and bishops are synonymous in the New Testament. It's a later, a later thing when you have bishops over everybody else. And then deacons, and deacons are concerned with service and, and serving sort of felt needs. Now hear this. Luke just said she's busy with much diakonos. She is busy with much service. She's so busy helping the community and, and, and kind of fast-forwarding, applying it here. That's as if one of us in this community became so busy running the soundboard like Nick's doing, which he's serving us by doing that because then I don't have to shout at you and the spit comes out of my mouth when I shout so everyone can hear me, Right? Uh, uh, or, or any of the other things that happened this morning. Even so the small congregation, you get to the people who sat out the chairs, the people who put out the curtains, the band, all these different people uh, did this work, but we did this work so the church could come together to worship Jesus. She's distracted with much service. Her eyes are on what she is doing and not on the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep going. And she went to him and said, oh, she's trying to settle the dispute again. And she went to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone? Don't you know what she's supposed to be doing? We're working on the potluck. Tell her then to help me. Rebuke her, Jesus. Tell her what to do. She's appealing to him. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. By the way, when Jesus says it twice, pay attention. It's it's a way to add um, emphasis. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things. She's got her eyes on what she's doing. But one thing is necessary. Remember that from the rich run Mueller? One thing you got to do. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. So she's putting absolutely everything in the back seat compared to Jesus. That's the very thing he wanted the rich young ruler to do. That's the very thing he wants you to do. Right? There is no thing in your life more important than Jesus. But this becomes obvious when we actually consider the truth of the gospel. When we consider the reality that we are sinners saved by the grace and mercy of God and there's nothing we can do to to earn that love, but we receive it through his cross and resurrection. We are receivers of the love of God and receivers in a mighty and significant way. You know, I think it can be easy to pick on the rich young ruler and be like, oh, he should stop being such a materialist. You know, we we live in a time and a place where we're, we're railing against materialism. You know, you can set up a website and get donations to rail against materialism so you can have material things in 2016, right? We're, we're caught. Whoops. 
Um, this is trickier. This is trickier because you know what? If you're caught up in this, if you're caught up in service and in doing, but you're not after Jesus and you're not paying attention to him, you're not listening to his teaching, the gospel's not changing your life, uh, you can work hard to provide for your kids. You can work hard to serve your family. You can work hard to help the church. You can pour into the lives of other people. You can work hard preaching the gospel. You can take classes. You can do things. You can read books. You can do all of these things. But if it is not in an effort to respond to the grace and the mercy of Jesus, and you're not getting Jesus out of the deal, you've actually picked a bad portion. Because the thing about Martha is she's loving people, Right? She's serving people. She's, she's, not, she's not doing anything wrong except for she's chosen the bad portion. She's not doing anything wrong except for she's not getting after Jesus, which means when we're not getting after Jesus, we're actually doing everything wrong because we're doing it all the wrong way. Um. Yeah, go with me. I mean, sometimes Jesus calls us to do wild stuff. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible happens in Mark chapter 5. Because sometimes this means that, that we have a plan and we have an idea and we think what is best, but Jesus actually knows what's best for his glory and for us knowing him better. All right, uh, Mark chapter 5 uh, is this really, really wild story where Jesus goes and he saves this guy who's got a demon. He's been chained up and living outside of town and keeps breaking the chains, and it's, it's, it's nuts, right? Jesus comes. He casts the demon out. Again, always look at Jesus' miracles. They're always restorative. He casts demons out because malevolent spiritual forces, which are real, are not to be running amok in the world. That's, that's one of the things. That's why he feeds people so they can be... He feeds people because they're hungry. He heals people because they're not supposed to be sick. Uh, but here we go. And, and so this happens. Uh, he, he casts this this creepy horde of demons out of him. Um, and the herdsmen who saw it, they, they flee. Uh, I'll start in 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what had happened. This is a, this is a big deal. Everybody knew about this guy. He was the town crazy guy who lived out uh, in the cave, right? And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed in his right mind. Healed, restored, right? And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described uh, to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, because that's where he threw it, and they jumped off the cliff. Uh, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. What an interesting response. This is weird. This is messing with the status quo. We like things the way that we at least knew how to handle him when he was out there. Uh, weird stuff is happening. If you could just go, we'd really be appreciative of that, Jesus, because we don't want any more weird stuff to happen. Get out of here. By the way, if you follow Jesus, if you become a Christian, weird stuff happens. Stuff that people who don't know Jesus and don't love Jesus won't understand. In fact, stuff will happen that people who do know Jesus and, and do love him still don't necessarily understand. That is life, because Jesus calls us to crazy things from time to time, and Jesus is about to call him something crazy. As he, that's Jesus, was getting into the boat, the man who had, who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Take me with you. Get me out of here. All I want is you, Jesus. Jesus wants all of us, and I'll show you how much Jesus wants all of us. He wants not just... Not just not just uh, our affection or just our thoughts. He wants our, our will. He wants, he wants all of us, the things we want to do, our wants to be surrendered to him. And here, I'll show it to you because he wants to go with Jesus, but Jesus tells him something different, 19. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Go tell them about God. Go tell those people who think you're crazy about God. Go tell them about what God is doing in the world. They're going to think you're nuts. I mean, it's, it's, there's this sense that, you know, if you, if you just get on a plane and go somewhere else, uh, you move to Cleveland. You're from Cleveland. I'm not trying to pick on you. Uh, there's nothing wrong with Cleveland. But if you leave Cleveland, it's different than Seattle, right? You can go to Cleveland. You can get a job. You can, you can, uh, you can buy a house. You can get an apartment. You can join a new church, and nobody knows anything about you. 
right? Maybe they don't know your testimony. Maybe they don't know about your background. Sometimes that's easier. I mean, some of us, by God's grace and mercy, by the love of Jesus, have the, the most amazing testimony to me is when you say that I love the Lord so long ago that I don't remember when I became a Christian. That is the greatest testimony that anyone can offer, by the way. But some of us don't have that testimony. Some of us, uh, like myself, I got saved here in Seattle. I'm from Bellingham, right? Uh, when I'm around the Northwest, I still bump into people who are like, oh, you're that guy, you know, a decade later, right? That's awkward and uncomfortable. They still associate me with the person who I was when I was dead before I was saved. You know what would be easier? If I left and never saw any of them ever, ever, ever again. Sometimes people come in here who I knew from, like, high school, and they're like, what are you doing? Or whatever. That, that has happened from time to time. Crazy stories I can tell. Awesome things God does. It weirds people out. You know what? That's awkward for me. It is awkward. You may have had this experience. It might be awkward for you. You know, one time uh, I was having uh, dinner at the house of the guy who was going to marry my wife and I. Uh, it turns out his son had married a gal from my high school. And she's there with her kids. I'm there with my fiance. We're just having dinner, me and their wives. Getting ready, or me and... The guy who's doing the wedding and his wife, and you know, they were happened to be living there at the time. And in the middle of dinner, I'm just, just chewing my steak, hanging out. She just stops and she says, What are you doing here? And I said, Eating dinner? And she said, No, you were so angry at Christian kids and you were so mean about, it. and she's like, Let me, you know, relive that moment for just a minute, you know, I'm no Paul of Tarsus, but I was not the kindest person to Christians in high school. I made it my aim to try and do, uh, to undo their faith as much as I could, and it's painful to think about. And I'm sitting here having dinner, getting ready to get married, and all that comes back up, and my only answer is Jesus. Jesus saved me, and I'm here, and he loves me, and I'm alive now. This guy gets to go and have that conversation a lot. Weren't you that guy who lived up in those chains? Yeah, and Jesus came and healed me, and he cast those demons out, and I'm a man made new. This is what God will do for you. Know him and love him. He had to surrender all of himself to Jesus. He had to surrender his will to Jesus. His will was to get in the boat and go with Jesus, and again, just like Martha, there ain't nothing wrong with getting in the boat with Jesus. But Jesus had different plans for him. Different plans for him. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. The Decapolis means ten cities. It's intensity in ten cities. It's the only Wayne's World reference you'll find in the Bible, by the way. He wants all of us. Uh, go with you to Matthew 5. Uh, as we war against our sin, uh, we need to understand that sin is the right things we do for the wrong reasons. Uh, all the stuff we do, like the rich young ruler who thinks, oh, I'm doing the right stuff, I'm cleaned up, I'm good, everybody love me, throw me a parade, because I am awesome. So that we turn the attention back on ourselves. Uh, sin is also all the wrong things we do, all the wiling out, all the rebellion, all the stuff where we just do whatever we want to do. Uh, and it's also all the right things we choose not to do, that we passively sit by uh, as sin goes on, and we roll up the window, or we close our shades, or we turn a blind eye to things that we can do something about that's happening in the lives of others. Right things we do for the wrong reasons, wrong things we do, and the right things we choose not to do are all sin. In addition to that, as we look at idolatry as sin, uh, the, the, the love and worship of things uh, other uh, than God, and, and we'll, we'll talk about that part in just a second. Jesus wants us to war against our sin, because when we turn to sin, we turn away from Jesus. We belong to Jesus, and yet we're after sin. Jesus wants all of us, and this is how much he wants all of us. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. We're in Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus says something I want us to be careful not to write off as hyperbolic. By that, I mean something he's just saying and exaggerating on, and here we are. In chapter 5, and verse 29, he says this, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now, so when we say this, we say, no, 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 no don't do anything weird. Don't go home and do anything weird. And I would say that too. I would affirm that all day long. Like, 
this, don't do this. But here's, here's the problem. We have a problem at our core. And that's that when we cut off our right hand, we still have our left hand to do sin with, right? Uh, when we take out one eye, we still have the other. You take them all away, and we still have this heart, that impossible thing that needs to get fixed back from Luke, right? We still have our sin. What Jesus is calling us to is a radicality in dispatching the things that are life that are keeping us from Jesus, whatever they might be, because he wants all of us. Uh, we are so quick to just say, oh, it's not a big deal. It's just part of living in 2016. Uh, you know, that's the thing that, that guys struggle with. That's the thing gals struggle with. That's the thing people struggle with. That's just life. Jesus wants us to be so determined to be after him that we have a laser-sharp focus in eradicating absolutely everything in our life, every hurdle in our life that is in the way of our love of him. He wants us. He wants all of it. And he wants us to get after him with a fervor. Uh, go with me back to Luke 18, uh, just above where we're looking. Now, we're going to see some things with how Luke has ordered the Bible. Now, if you're reading your Bible... And you're reading, which you should, because the Bible is awesome. As you're reading the synoptic gospels, you might say, hey, wait a minute. Or you're reading the gospels, wait a minute. Uh, didn't Mark, Matthew, and Luke say that, that Jesus cleansed the temple right before he was crucified? And, and then John says it's right at the beginning. Hey, wait a minute. How can that be true? Uh, just like when you read a, a news story, you might find that things are presented in a different than chronological order. Sometimes they'll walk through the chronological order of things, but usually there's this phrase, don't bury your lead. You put what's important in front, and we order things accordingly as you receive the story to understand the news. The Gospels are good news. They're a first century, what's, here's a great, great, great Scrabble word if you're playing Scrabble. They're a historiography. I said it right. There it is. They're a historiography, meaning they're recording the events as eyewitness accounts very common. Gospels are their own genre because they're dealing with Jesus. But this is very, very common in the first century. In fact, we live in a time and a place where we say, well, news should be objective and people who report should be objective and they should keep their feelings out of it. Uh, in the first century, they thought that that's stupid. I don't know another way to put it. That's just what they thought. They thought that that idea is idiotic. If you are going to tell the story about a great general and the war he won, and you're saying, but I'm really kind of a dispassionate observer. They said, well, who cares? Give me someone who cares about something. Give me somebody with some passion about what that general did in that war. I'm going to tell you about the story of the king, but I'm just going to kind of stay out of it. No! We want it from the guy who was right. We want the story from his right-hand man about the king who did the things and how awesome he was. Likewise, these gospels are not dispassionate. John's really clear. It's written so that you would believe. But one of the things in historiographies is they put things in particular order, not necessarily chronological order. I don't think it's a mistake that this or the next passage are where they are relative to the rich, young ruler. Okay? So here we are, back, backing up just a little bit in verse 15 of chapter 18. Now, when they were bringing even infants to him, so why is the word even here, or also? They were also bringing infants to him. I think that means that, that, that Luke has in mind all the things that people have already been doing. They're bringing sick people to him. They're bringing demon-possessed people to him. Normal people were coming to him. Sick people were coming to him. Lost people were coming to him. Uh, uh, you know, the outcasts of society were coming to him. Children were coming to him. And now, now they're bringing babies. This is great for a family service. I hadn't thought of it, but it's great for a family service deal. I'm so glad the kids are in here with us. They get great gospel messages in kids' ministry, but also it's great that you're here with the church and we're talking about the Bible. So they're bringing infants now, and the disciples are like, this is ridiculous, you guys got to stop. The line is too long, or whatever, right? That's a bit of a remix. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. Now, this is weird if you're anybody else, but when God incarnate is there, he's an okay guy to have touch, touch the baby. When we make a line for some other holy person, eh, he's just a dude. But Jesus actually counts. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. So they were rebuking the parents, obviously, hopefully not the infants. Uh, but Jesus called them to him, saying, now he uses the word children, so the other one's babies. This is the word padion, children. Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for such, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, but Jesus called them and saying, let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Profound, but here's, here's what's important. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus wants all of us, which means we don't 
come to Jesus with bargains. We don't come to Jesus with deals. We don't come to Jesus saying, I will be a Christian if we can get rid of this part of the Bible or this teaching in this area. I will come to Jesus if you accept me in such and such way. We should actually expect that if we are going to have an encounter with the God of the universe, that that should change us and we come to the table with absolutely empty hands. We come to God with absolute and complete uh, humility and we come to God saying, I want you out of the deal, right? Because this is idolatry. There's two kinds of idolatry. One is where we take something and elevate it to the place of God, just like the rich young ruler did. The other kind is where we remake God in such an image that we're not actually worshiping the God of the Bible anymore. We're actually worshiping an idol. This is why, if you'll notice, Paul begins to, as the letters move on chronologically, he begins to talk about those, uh, those Old Testament folks who are re rejecting Jesus as Messiah in more of a pagan kind of context because they were rejecting such an important element about who God was revealed to be in the person of Jesus. Okay. So when we say, well, you know, I, I like the loving Jesus. I don't really like the wrathy Jesus. I, I worship that Jesus, not the wrathy Jesus. Now, of course, we live in a time and a place where we actually do appreciate wrath, whether you're a Christian or not. Uh, you know, someone does something out of line with sort of the moral revolution. We ding them with a $150,000 fine because they won't make a cake for a particular wedding. That's a wrathful response to that, by the way. That's not a grace-based, let's talk them into a response. That's a you're going to pay and you're going to lose your house response. And they deserve it, dang it. Right? That's wrath. Wrath is the business end of justice. And we are a people in 2016 who actually like justice. And we actually think people should pay for their wrongs. God happens to be all right and no wrong, all good and no bad, and is the proper person to dispense said justice. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, the beautiful thing about God and his grace and his mercy is that he has an answer for our wrath, and that's the cross. The answer for our sin and the business end of his justice, which we deserve, is taking that business end of his, ju of his justice on himself on our behalf so that we don't have to. He drinks the cup so we don't have to. Uh, he deals with our sin so we don't have to. This is the gospel and the grace and mercy of God. Right? The problem is when we start bringing deals to God, I'll, I'll accept this part of God, but science says this. I'll accept this. I, I don't like Paul. I'm not going to read Paul. I'm not going to read the Old Testament. I'm just going to read the gospel. Interestingly enough, you read the gospels. The gospels are more offensive than any other part of the Bible, in my opinion, when you actually read them. It's something that people say who haven't actually read the Gospels. Jesus says things like, carry your eye, cut off your hand. Like, it's serious. Jesus is serious. But that's idolatry. When we remake God in some other image, that's idolatry. We have to come as children. My children, I've never, I've never heard a small child do that. I've never heard a small child remake who God is. They receive who he is. If they love Jesus, they just want to know about him and love him. And they'll ask you 10,000 questions. And they're great questions. And you don't have to have the answer to all of them, right? They're great questions. But nonetheless, we accept God for who he is. And, and God wants us to come as children. He wants us to come in humbleness and humility and receive him for who he is. God wants all of us. Go with me to Luke 19. So this is coming pretty close to the rich young ruler. It's our last, last passage we'll look at. He entered Jericho. 19 verse 1, that's Jesus. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a cheap tax collector. So tax collectors are not just a guy from the IRS who's making you do extra paperwork. There are guys who, if you live next door to them, you grew up with him, you knew him, he starts working for the Romans, he buys the right to be able to work for the Romans, he takes your money, and he takes too much of your money and skims off the top and puts it in his pocket and you know it and there's nothing you can do about it. And then he takes your money and gives it to Rome, the hegemonic superpower that has their army in your city messing with your life and your friend's life and hurting you or people you know. So they're taking your money and giving it to them so that they can mess with you. And this is the guy you went to like, like elementary school with. Come on, man. Why would you do this to me? Right? Nobody likes this guy. Nobody likes this guy. You wouldn't either. It's, it's a bad thing. That's why they're always with other uh, marginalized people who are considered to be sinners. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He's doing a good job at doing his job. 
And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Mostly the only thing we remember about him from the Sunday school song. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass by the way. And Jesus came to the place, and he looked at him and said, Zacchaeus, this is the guy who you're not talking to anymore because you went to middle school with him, and y'all used to listen to Silverchair or whatever, and now he... Sorry, I was listening to 90s music yesterday. Uh, Y'all were listening to these tapes together. That's what we used to have when we, before we could email the DVDs. Um, you knew him from way back in the day. You were friends from way back when, and you weren't talking to him anymore. And all of a sudden, Jesus is talking to him. And you think to yourself, Jesus, don't you know? Don't you know that Zacchaeus is a jerk? You never even gave me my silver chair tape back. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. I mean, this is, this is radical stuff. It's hard for us to even imagine what's happening here. So he heard and came down and received him joyfully. And when he saw it, they grumbled. He has gone to, the, to be the guest of man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus, stood, uh, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord. Now, hear the difference between the rich and the world. Jesus doesn't tell him to do anything here. This is, how we even, this is another way that you can tell that, that command to the rich guy is not normative. Behold, Lord... The half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Because Jesus comes, and we start with in Christ alone, because I am his and he is mine. Because Jesus came and saved Zacchaeus. That is true of him. Because Jesus was now his, and John's going to say this over and over again, I'm yours, I'm in you, and you're in me, abide in me as I abide in you, as I abide in the Father. This, this, is, this is the truth. We are so unified with Christ when we become Christians. He understands the reality of gospel so much that this sinner is unified with God in relationship that he casts everything else off. Take it. All I want is Jesus. That's all I want out of the deal. I just want him. I just want his love. I just want to know him. Take everything. Take my money. Poor people, take this. Everybody ripped off. Take it. I don't want it. I don't want my sin. I don't want my money. I want Jesus. That's all I want. That's all I'm after because that's all I need. That's all that counts. Zacchaeus just flings it off. And just willfully just like gives his, the whole of his being to Christ in this moment. That doesn't mean he's not a sinner. He doesn't struggle. He's not going to war with the sin for his rest of his life. But it does mean that, that in this clear moment, he's casting everything off to get to what actually counts, and that's Jesus. That's what Jesus wants from you. That's what Jesus wanted from the rich young ruler. Cast off that money and get after me. That's what he wants from Martha. Get rid of this. You know, don't focus on serving. Focus on me. Uh, that's what he wants when we're warring against our sin. Get rid of your sin. Do whatever it takes to get rid of your sin. Get after me. Uh, 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 this is what we have. Take all your presuppositions and leave them. Check them at the door and come learn from the master. Come learn from Jesus. Receive his love. That's why children receive the kingdom. And this messed up sinner, Zacchaeus, gets it. Throws it all off. I don't want it. I want you. Three things I think we need to see from this text. One, there's no terms of surrender. There's no bargaining at the table. Well, Jesus, you can be, I'll, I'll elect you Messiah of my life if, you know, whatever. If I can still keep all my money and kind of have my CD job doing horrible things. No. No. I'm not saying you have to fling it all away and become a monk, but just so you know, if you're a Christian, every dollar in your bank account belongs to Jesus. Every ounce of gas in your car belongs to Jesus. It's all his. Live with it like it's his. Which, by the way, is as a gift to you for his service and love of him. Okay? Secondly, we lay down our lives because he laid down his. This is our response. We lay all these things, all these preferences, all these love of self. We lay all of these things aside because he laid aside his divine rights and entered into human history to die on the cross for the glory of God to save sinners and to give us life. And we respond to that reality by giving our whole of ourselves to him. And just finally, we give him ourselves because he gave us himself. Because we get Jesus out of the deal, 
because the great treasure and the great reward in eternal life is Christ. We fling all things aside because the greatest gift we've received is Jesus. The greatest treasure we have is Jesus. The thing we look forward to in eternity is seeing him face to face. The, the core of the Christian faith is not do good things so you get to be to heaven, but that Jesus Christ died for your sins to save you from yourself so that you get Jesus out of the deal. Embrace him, love him, follow him, and get absolutely everything out of the way to get to him. If you're not a Christian, this is the truth. There is nothing more important in your life than knowing God. The way to know God is through his son, Jesus, who died for your sins. You're dead and you need to live. Lay everything aside and receive him and his love. For those of us who do know him, what are you, what are you hanging on to? What's the, what's the thing when you hear words like this that you want to just hold on to? Jesus, you can have everything, but I won't. I don't want you to have this. I'll, I'll, yeah, take my money. I don't care about money. Oh, but I'm not going to do that. It's different for everyone. Maybe it is money. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's this. Maybe it's that. I don't know. That's not between me and you. That's between you and God. And, 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 and this is just our admonishment. You've been given everything in Christ, namely Jesus. You've been given life eternal, not just in duration, but in quality. The gift of the gospel is you get to live. I implore you. going to transition to communion now. This is a victory table. We take this in joy and celebration. We consider ourselves, as Paul told us to in 1 Corinthians, we lay aside our sin, but when we come to this table, we come as victors uh, who, who are enjoying the celebration and the victory of Jesus. His death on the cross, we do this in remembrance of his body broken and blood shed for us to make us alive, to forgive us for our sins, and empower our lives to be about and for him first and foremost. So on the table, we have gluten-free bread on one side. We have regular bread in the middle. We have juice and wine, according to your conscience, and a basket for the offering of the ministry. So we take a minute in our seat to just consider ourselves and turn from our sin and turn to Jesus. But when we get up and we take this, we, we take this as a community to proclaim his death, burial, and resurrection. And we get up and sing songs to him because he's risen from the dead. And we celebrate God with all we do together now as a church. So when you're ready, please feel free to partake in this. I'll pray for us. Uh, King Jesus, Lord we want you to have all of us. There are things in our life that make that difficult. There are, there are loves that we love more than you. There are things we desire more than you. And I just, we, just, we just renounce those things. We just pray you would even help us to put those good things that we love more than we should in their right place in our life and in our hearts and in our minds. And I just pray that this wouldn't be an effort in spiritual white knuckling or spiritual push-ups or trying to do something to be a good Christian, but we do it in, in a response to your divine love for us that because we see you for who we are, for you, who you are, we release these other things and we turn to you and we put them in our right place or we get rid of them all together, whatever it needs to be, Lord Jesus. But I pray you'd empower us by your spirit to do that. You, you would fill us, you would lead us, you would guide us that we would live our whole lives with you as the focus, trying to know you more and knowing that you revealed yourself to us and that we've received your love and, and that we move out more and more towards you. We love you, Jesus. Pray these things for your glory and for our joy. In your name, Jesus Christ, amen.